therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of God. Our God, thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your presence and now with your word open in front of us. Lord, as we look at Romans 8, we ask for what this passage teaches, that we would be led by the Spirit, that we would not just understand more about your Spirit at work, but that we'd experience it today. Please be with us now for your glory as we pray together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, good morning. If I haven't yet met you, my name is Bijan, and I'm the pastor for our church. And we've been, for the past few weeks, in a series looking at our church's vision and values. For nine weeks this autumn, we're taking time to look at passages in the Bible that shape and animate our church, that give us a vision for the kind of church we are and want to be as we love and serve our city. We've already talked about two of those values. We've talked about bringing people to Jesus and belonging to each other in the church. And now we're in the midst of discussing our third value, which is following Jesus every day. We started talking about that last week. What does it mean to follow Jesus or to be a disciple? And today is week two of unpacking the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And here's what we're talking about today. To follow Jesus, biblically, according to scripture, is to be led by the Spirit. There's an intimate relationship between following Jesus and life in the Holy Spirit. And so what we're talking about for the time that we have this morning is what does it look like for the Holy Spirit to be at work in the daily life of the Christian? And it's essential that we spend time talking about the work of the Spirit in our Vision and Value series, and here's why. I can do no better than to quote the rock star Bono, who said, religion is what happens when the Spirit leaves the building. Religion is what happens when the Spirit leaves the building. Now, he's using the word religion in a negative sense, but here's what he means. Just showing up at church and going through the motions the lifeless following of spiritual rules, the, the way of relating to God that feels more duty than delight. Well, that's what happens when the Spirit isn't at work and not present. We, as a church, are not interested in just advancing religion. We want to see the kingdom of God come in our city. We want to experience transformation individually and as a community. 
and we won't experience that kind of powerful transformation. We won't see God's justice come. We won't see God's kingdom advance in our church and in this city apart from the active working of the Spirit of God. We can't do it on our own. We do not have the power. Only God's Spirit can bring about that kind of change and transformation. And so this question, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit, is absolutely essential for us if we're gonna be a church that's able to accomplish our vision and mission. So that's why we're talking about it. And to guide us today, we're looking at Romans chapter eight. Now the outline for this morning's sermon, as we look at this passage, the first thing we're gonna talk about is who or what is the Holy Spirit. Second, what is it that the Holy Spirit does? What's the work of the Spirit? And then third, how this is possible, how the Spirit can be at work in your life. So who or what is the Holy Spirit? What does the Spirit do? And how the Spirit can do that and be at work in your life. And so first, who or what is the Holy Spirit? Now, one of the great challenges that I have in preaching on the Holy Spirit is where do I start? There's so much in the Bible about the importance of the work of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit. So how do I pack it all into one sermon? There's two answers. One is I could make it a really long sermon, or the other is we can just focus on an aspect, and we'll do the latter. We're just going to focus this morning on one aspect of who the Holy Spirit is. And here, I'm not so much explaining Romans chapter 8 as I am summarizing various parts of what the Bible teaches. So this is more of an overview and a summary. But when we ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit, here's the answer. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of the living God with his people. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of the living God with his people. Now, let me help you understand what that means by way of a story. One of the passages or the stories of the Bible that has deeply shaped us as a church, that has animated us over the past year, is the story of God's people coming out of Egypt during the Exodus. So some of you may know, this is back in the book of Exodus, God's people were in bondage. They were in slavery. And God hears their cries for deliverance. So he sends to them a savior, Moses. And Moses, as God's representative, brings the people out of Egypt. He frees them from their slavery. They cross dramatically the Red Sea, and they enter a period called their wilderness wanderings. So here's what's happened for the people. They've experienced a mighty act of God's salvation. They've been freed from their bondage, but they're not home yet. They're in the midst of a journey. They've been freed from their slavery, but they're not yet at the promised land. And now pause, that's where we are. That's what it means to be a Christian. To have experienced on one hand the powerful saving work of God in Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time to recognize you're not home yet. Your life is still very much a journey. You're in the wilderness. There are struggles and there are temptations and there are battles. And so that's where the people of God were during this period. Freed from Egypt but not yet home. And here they are in the wilderness, and they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They don't have direction. They're confused, and they're alone, and they're lost in the wilderness. So God, as he sees the plight of his people, 
comes to them and says, I was getting sunburned. Thank you, Meg. <laughs> that was funny. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you never want to shy away from the sun here, but that was, uh, that was very bright. Anyhow, the people there, as they're making their wilderness journey, they, they're directionless and they need help. And so God sees their plight and he hears their cry. And what does he do? God comes to them and says, I will be your guide and I will lead you. And the way God does that is by giving his very presence. So let me read to you from the book of Exodus. It says this, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Do you hear what the passage is saying? The people are in the wilderness. They don't know where to go. And God shows up his very presence as a cloud by day and fire by night. And God says to his people, you don't know where you're going, but I do. And so your job is to stay as close to the fire as you can. When the fire moves, you move. And when the fire stops, you stop. And so you could imagine if you encountered the people of God in the wilderness during this time and you walked up to them and you, you said, do you guys know where you're going? They would say, yeah, we're going to the promised land. And then you'd say, well, do you know how to get there? And they'd say, no idea. And then you'd say, well, what are you doing? We're staying as close to the fire as we can. Because when it moves, we move. And when it stays put, we stay put. Because that fire is the presence of God with us. And we follow it as best we can. Now, what does that mean for us as Christians on this side of Jesus' death? Well, here's what it means. And this is the wonder of wonders of the Christian message. That in the Old Testament, God led his people with his presence that was fire in front of them. But now God leads his people with his spirit inside of them. The same way that God guided his people back then with the promise of his presence to lead them through the wilderness is now an indwelling reality for people who have been united to Jesus Christ in faith. To be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you. The very personal presence of God with you in your journey as you make your way towards God's promised land. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's who he is. The very personal presence of God with you and for you, leading you and guiding you. That's the person of the Holy Spirit. But that leads us now to ask, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time today, what does the Holy Spirit do? If the Holy Spirit is the personal presence of the living God with us in the midst of our wilderness wandering, here's the next question, what does the Spirit do? And here's where I have to get a little personal for a minute. Months ago, when I wrote out this sermon series, planning for what we'd be talking about, when we were gonna come to this Sunday, what I thought we'd be talking about is how the Holy Spirit shows you what to do. So you have questions in your life. Should I be in a relationship with this person? Or should I pursue that job? Or how do I raise my kids? All these really important questions. And what I thought we'd be talking about 
is how do we follow the Spirit's leading in showing us what to do? And you know why I thought that? Because I have an idol of productivity. Because I'm all about accomplishment. I'm all about getting stuff done. And so naturally, when I'm thinking about the leading of the Spirit, my question is, what should I do? What should I do? Tasks and products and productivity. And maybe you're like me. We live in a busy and an anxious city. We live in a time and in a world where we want to accomplish things and get things done. And then, as I was wrestling with all of that, I came face to face with Romans chapter 8. And this chapter has been like a mercifully much needed cup of cold water in my face. Because when I asked the question, Spirit, what should I do? The answer that the Spirit gives me is a very gentle conviction, a slight rebuke. And here's what we see in Romans 8. Let me give it to you in summary and then spend some time unpacking it with you. According to the passages that we've just read, the main work of the Holy Spirit is not to tell us what to do, but it's to tell us whose we are. The main work of the Holy Spirit is not to tell you what to do, but to tell you whose you are. Look with me at verse 16 of the passage. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the Christian. It testifies or makes you aware that you are a child of God. That's the main work of the Spirit. Now, if you're a here, Christian here today, you say, well, I already know that. I already know that I'm a child of God. Well, can the Spirit do something else? And here's what the passage is asking us to consider. You might know in your head that you're a child of God, but do you know it in your heart? You see, the word, when it says testify, it's a way of saying the Spirit makes us aware of something. It takes a truth that we know in our heads and it brings it down into our hearts. Many of us would say, I know that I'm a child of God, but you only know it abstractly. You only know it as a proposition. But it hasn't sunk down into the center of your soul as a lived reality. Let me say this as gently as I can, as, as sensitively as I can. The reason why I or you are afraid of the future or the reason that we're weighed down by guilt or weary because you feel like everything depends on you is because in those moments, the fact that you are a child of God is not animating the very center of your soul. Something else is. And so you might know, yes, I belong to God. Yes, I'm his child. But what's front and center are the problems that you're facing or the regrets that you have or the questions about your future. And those things are in the foreground. And your identity as a child of God is in the background. It's in your head, but it hasn't sunk down to your heart. And in those moments, the main work of the Holy Spirit is to make you aware personally, deeply, in reality, of a truth that you already know abstractly. The Holy Spirit comes and he makes the penny drop. 
and he says, you are God's child. And he takes that truth and he sinks it into the center of your soul so it becomes an animating and a transformative reality. Give you this example. Thomas Goodwin was a pastor here in London in the 17th century. And he tells the story of how one day he was walking through our city and just out in front of him, he saw a father walking with his young son. And they were walking along. They were happy. Everything looked fine. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the father grabs the little boy, picks him up, hugs him tight, showers him with kisses and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And the boy, as he's being hugged and embraced by his father, is giggling and laughing and smiling ear to ear, filled with delight. Then the father puts him back down and they keep walking. And Thomas Goodwin realized that that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is a divine scooping up of God's children to take what you knew to be true abstractly and make it a lived and felt experience personally. You see, if you ask that child before the father picked him up, do you know that that's your dad? He'd say, yeah, I know that's my dad. Do you know that your dad loves you? Yes, I know that he loves me. But in that moment when he was in the embrace of his father, he experienced it in a way that was powerful and transformative. What the Holy Spirit does is he comes to you and says, you are a child of God and takes that truth and pushes it down to the center of your soul where you're filled with joy and delight and laughter. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit do that? Well, many ways. There is not a one-size-fits-all the way the Spirit does that. Sometimes it's through Scripture. Have you ever had the experience? You're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden, something in Scripture grabs your heart, and it pierces you. Maybe it's a verse you've read a thousand times before, but on this particular day, it hits you with a new force like you've never seen. What's that? It's the Spirit of God testifying, making you aware of something that you knew but you didn't really know. Sometimes the Spirit will do this through the community of the church or in worship. You're here and you're singing and a truth that we proclaim lands on you with force in a way that you've never seen. Sometimes this happens when you're just walking down the street or an impression on your heart. There are many ways the Spirit does this. But the main way the Spirit of God works in the lives of his people is not first and foremost to give you tasks to do. It's to remind you of your identity as a child of God. Now, why does that matter? This is so important. If you look with me again at our passage in verse 15, listen to what the passage says. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Now, there's a lot here that I could say about those verses. They're actually incredibly dense, but here's the main point I want to draw out. To the degree that you begin to realize that you are God's child, when you know it not just in your head but in your heart, that truth begins to free you from fear. That truth begins to give freedom in your life from the bondage of fear. Because if we're honest, so much of our lives are plagued with fear, and especially fear about our future. So we're always asking questions like, will I ever meet the right person? 
Or will my family or my children be okay? Will I ever have a job that I actually feel satisfied with? Will I ever have enough money so I don't feel like every moment I'm just scraping by? And on and on, filled with fear. And that fear is a kind of bondage because we live our lives like everything depends on us. And if we make a wrong decision or if we take the wrong step, then everything in our life is going to be ruined. And so we live in fear and we live with bondage. And what the Spirit of God comes to do is to remind us, you are God's child. God is your father. And if that truth gets down into the center of your soul, you know what happens? You feel safe and you feel loved and you feel rejoiced over. As I looked at the Bible to learn about what it says about God as Father, those are always the things that stand out. The people who know God as Father feel safe and they feel loved and they feel rejoiced over. So first, this idea of safety. It means that no matter what you face in life, if God is truly your Father, you're safe. You might have an incredibly hard life and there might be terrible calamities that come your way. But as Psalm 23 says, even if you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear because God is with you. And so it's a promise that even if the hardest things come, if God is your father, he's with you and no ultimate harm can be your undoing. You're safe. And not just safe, but loved. You are loved by God. He doesn't just put up with you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He's not like, oh, there they are again. I guess I'll have to talk to them. He loves you. He loves you the way a good father loves their children. And you're rejoiced over. There's a great passage in the book of Zephaniah. Not that many of you have read Zephaniah recently. But there's a great passage in the book of Zephaniah that says, when God looks at you, he rejoices over you with singing. That means that God is so delighted when he sees you that he has to burst out in song. That's how God feels towards you if you're his child. And so what Romans 8 is saying is the work of the Spirit is to take what's true of you objectively, you are God's child, and make it a felt reality subjectively so that it animates every part of your life, so that you live in this world as a person who knows they are safe and they are loved and they are rejoiced over. That's the work of the Spirit testifying with your spirit that you are God's child. And now we want to ask, well, how is that possible? How can you experience that? How can this sermon today not just be information, but how can it bring transformation? How can you experience the work of the spirit saying you are God's child? And the answer, only in and through Jesus Christ. It's only in and through Jesus Christ that you'll hear the Spirit saying, you are God's child. Verse 15 of our passage, the very end, says that because of the work of the Spirit, we are able to cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba, it's an Aramaic word, and it's basically their version of daddy. It's the most intimate and personal way a child can address their father. It's a relationship of intimacy and closeness. And what Paul is saying here in Romans 8 is the Spirit of God enables you to relate to God 
the way an infant relates to their parent with total intimacy and closeness. Total safety, total trust, total love. That's what it means to be a Christian, according to Romans 8. You get to say to God, Abba. How is that possible? In and through Jesus. And so we look at the life of Jesus, and here's what we see. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he was just beginning to launch his public career as the Savior of the world, he's baptized. And when he's baptized, he comes up out of the water, and there's a voice from heaven, the voice of God the Father. And that voice says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You know what that was in that moment? That was God the Father scooping up his son Jesus and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. That was that moment. And Jesus then launches his public ministry and we see perfect obedience, always totally in lockstep with God his Father, always obeying, always trusting. And that culminates at the end of Jesus' life. Because on the very night before his death, Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he knows that his death is hours away. And he kneels down to pray. And in that moment, he says to his friends, my soul is overwhelmed to the point of death. He's in a moment of intense agony. And what he does next is stunning. He goes to God, his father, in prayer. And here's what he says. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In that moment there in the garden, facing death, Jesus cries out to God, his Father, with that same term of intimacy and closeness, saying to God, his Father, there's a cup in front of me and I don't want to drink it. That cup was a cup symbolizing the wrath of God. Because Jesus knew that in hours he would be betrayed and falsely condemned and he'd be hung on a cross. And on that cross he would be dying as a sacrifice, as a substitute. Because that cup symbolizes God's wrath, God's judgment, which has to be poured out on sin. Which is God's way of saying, I must judge evil. I must deal with injustice. I must deal with sin. And Jesus, as the willing sacrifice, says, someone's got to drink the cup, I'll do it. And in that moment, as Jesus cries out to his Father, he's surrendering himself to sacrifice, surrendering himself to be a savior and a substitute, so that as Jesus hung on the cross, he prayed again. But this time, when Jesus hung on that cross, he did not say, Abba. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now know this, on the cross as Jesus died, it's the only time he ever spoke to God and didn't refer to him as Father. It's the only time that Jesus ever said to God, my God, not my Father. Because what's happening on the cross, as Jesus takes upon himself the sin of the world, he loses the intimacy, the closeness with his father because he became the judgment for sin. He bore the penalty in himself. And do you know what that means? 
Because Jesus died for you and in your place, you now get to say to God, Abba. Because Jesus took your sin, you now receive a relationship with the Father that is just like Jesus's. Whereas he said, Abba, so can you. We are clothed with Jesus. We receive, if you would, a status with God that is akin to what Jesus had. We're brought into the family. And because of that, the Spirit of God can now say, that's already true of you, and let me make it a lived experience. And so the Spirit of God comes into our lives to take the truth that Jesus accomplished and sink it down into the center of our souls. So we say, I am a child of God. That's what it means to be a Christian, to hear God say to you this very morning, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. And so the invitation for all of us is to seek God's spirit, to say, spirit, come, and to know that when you pray that prayer, what you're really asking for is not just information about what you should do, but a reminder of your identity as God's child. The spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for teaching us now from Romans 8, for giving us insight and understanding about what your spirit has come to accomplish and produce. And Lord, we ask that as we seek to live into this reality that we are your children, we pray now that the power of your spirit would be at work in this place, accomplishing these things. That some of us, that all of us this morning, right now, would hear in the center of our souls that we are loved, that we are rejoiced over, that we are safe, that we are your children. Spirit, come. Spirit, come and accomplish your purposes right now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.